Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about Section 230 again, because that's a topic that's never going to stop being a hot topic in the next, I don't know, five years. We'll see. Joining us is Diane Katz, Senior Research Fellow in Regulatory Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Diane, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So Section 230, we've definitely approached uh, on the show before, and there are a gazillion articles, panels, events uh, surrounding it. But the paper that you recently released and we're going to link to is talking about something that hasn't been discussed in detail and analyzed. uh, At least I haven't seen anything. Um, You're approaching and analyzing Section 230 through the lens of a bill that was introduced by Senator Josh Hawley. And the bill is called uh, Ending Support for Internet Censorship Censorship Act. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about what the act um, implied? What Holly has done is is, um, propose a bill that I don't think is really intended to be legislated. But what he is doing is trying to use this as a vehicle uh, to punish those platforms that are accused of being biased against conservatives. And when I say um, that it's intended to be used to punish them, it's kind of a backdoor regulatory regime because the the Congress can't uh, directly regulate uh, the content moderation practices of these uh, platforms. And so Holly has got, made it his business to find a, a, a backdoor of sorts um, to try to force platforms um, into treating conservative content supposedly in a fair manner. Right. Let's premise this by saying, and I can say this, uh, and this is Tech Freedom's official position, that there is no empirical data that proves that the bias exists. There is only anecdotal evidence. However, there have been cases that have uh, been addressed by the platforms. Content moderation is hard and they get it wrong sometimes. And it's not based on the political affiliation. They've got it wrong with uh, left-leaning groups and left-leaning activists, and they've gotten wrong with right leaning groups and activists and politicians. And this is not, there's no big conspiracy and there's no proof of big conspiracy as far as tech freedom is concerned. Um, well, I would just add, and and I realize that my position is probably not common here, um, here being Washington, but I think it needs to be said, which is I don't really think it matters whether it's been proven or not. Because there's nothing, there's no obligation that these platforms have to 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 live up to someone's, you know, definition of fair. These are private platforms, and they have their own codes of conduct and their own operational standards. And if they decided that they don't want to run, you know, conservative content. That's their decision. Now, would that be smart in terms of either politically or, you know, commercially? No. But is it 
the business of the government, whether Facebook or Google has 20% versus 50% of conservative content? No. These, as long as these are private platforms, um, and thank goodness we, we do have private platforms rather than government platforms, um, whether we can prove censorship or bias is as far as I'm concerned, beside the point. So, Diane, you mentioned the word fairness, and in your paper you talk about the fairness doctrine. Uh, Do you mind uh, letting our listeners know uh, what are your thoughts on that doctrine and how it kind of plays into your bigger research agenda? The fairness doctrine uh, was something that was passed by the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, uh, back in 1949. And the FCC you know, was the oversight body to make sure that um, the public airwaves were used in a in a way that was, uh, you know, that benefited the public um, because it was a public good. That is, it, it, the airwaves are not privately owned. They're they're something that um, are supposed to be the used by by for the public good. In any event, this doctrine. Um, It required broadcasters, and I'll I'll quote here, to afford reasonable opportunities for the discussion of conflicting views of public importance. Now, what exactly does that mean and how would you possibly measure, um, you know, whether um, something was a reasonable opportunity? Well, that's the problem with these kind of edicts because they're imprecise and they can be very arbitrary. So what ultimately happened is that broadcasters, out of fear of um, violating the fairness doctrine, either um, stopped running, you know, public affairs types of programming because they didn't know what would or wouldn't satisfy. It was a very vague standard. Right, right. The standard. Um, and so it ended up that, that you know, people probably got less information um, than they would, would have otherwise. And there are other instances in which the federal government, either through the FCC or, or otherwise, have attempted to in, impose um, a fairness um, standard on other you know, broadcasters in other ways. And it keeps running into the same problem, which is fairness according to whom and how do you measure it? And, um, you know, it it ultimately doesn't end well. Our experience has shown that um, it, it usually has perverse consequences. I also read in your paper, which was amazing, and I didn't know about that. And I mean, it wasn't amazing, but it was fascinating that one station's owner eliminated all Bob Dylan songs because the management could not interpret the lyrics and they were, you know, afraid to uh, be fined or punished for that. And they wanted to avoid all mention of drug use or even anti-drug messages um, and lose their license. Uh, So that was like, that's such a good example of, oh, my God. You can't political debates slash art sometimes don't even have a line between them. So it's not just about political debates at that point. Um, All right. So how do we now come back to this? We obviously have a digital era and kind of are rehashing all the old questions again as a society and processing them. And uh, I want to go back to 
Josh Hawley, Senator Hawley's proposal, um, his bill, I just, I don't know, I don't know how to call it. Um, but um, he, as far as I remember, was suggesting that the Federal Trade Commission uh, would be the agency that is going to handle evaluating if big platforms were being neutral towards the content. And how were they going to, was there like a vote? Like what was the system that he was proposing? Yeah. So what we haven't talked about is direct, how it relates to section 230, um, how the Hawley proposal um, and, you know, the, the um, fairness um element of of Holly's proposal, how that all fits in with with Section 230. So let me try to explain that first. Holly, knowing that the First Amendment precludes the government from directly, you know, regulating what platforms, you know, run on their speech. And it's not an absolute. There are exceptions, but, you know, just suffice it to say that it largely forbids the, the, the government. Um, from doing that. So what he's going after with this bill is um, the Section 230, um, it's a, called a safe harbor. And and Section 230 refers to a cloak of, of protection against liability um, for the content that platforms post or that is posted on platforms. That they host, yes. That they host, right. Um, so Ron Wyden and um, Christopher Cox. So in 96, they, um, following a couple of contradictory um, cases, legal cases, decided that platforms um, would be more likely to moderate the content on their websites in a responsible manner if they didn't run the risk of being sued every time they either posted or took down some content that was created by the public. And they, um, therefore, they created a a protection against liability. Um, that is that these platforms couldn't be sued um, for their content moderation policies. Now, again, there are limited exceptions, criminal statutes and the like. Um, but in terms of the, the broader purpose was to allow platforms to freely moderate the content on their on their platforms um, without running the risk of, of of lawsuits and there would believe me there would have been many 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 which would effectively have shut down um, the the free flow of information on, I mean, on these websites start if you think about it we wouldn't have the internet the way we know it we wouldn't have platforms that would host other people's content because all these cases, right, that you mentioned in your paper, the courts were um, kind of going after platforms to actually try to take down like bad content and awful content, content or whatever content they didn't like on their platform and wasn't suiting their goals. So we wouldn't even have, I mean, obviously all these big names like Facebook and Google right now often um, get a negative reaction from the public, but think about it before Facebook and Google, Yahoo and MySpace existed. And now the new generation, my dear listeners who are probably all over the age 21, I'm going to guess. Um, although if you're under the age of 21, tweet at me. I really want to know that you're listening to our show. 
But all of them are like on TikTok. None of them are on Facebook. None of them care about Facebook or none of them, you know, use the platforms that my generation uses. So it's it's all changing and it's all able to change and develop and free market is able to be at play because of Section 230. Right, right. It, it really in, in enabled platforms to curate freely the the content that that is on their on their sites so what what so in order to tie this all together what holly proposed is that this immunity would only be recognized would only be granted if websites could prove um, or platforms could prove um, that they were neutral that they were fair to all political viewpoints, which on its face is sort of absurd because, A, who's going to be the arbiter of that? Well, he thought the Federal Trade Commission, and all five I, people. All five of them? How was the vote? Was it five? But but two, two could block a certification. So, so two minority, let's say, Republicans or two minority Democrats right. can easily block. So this is going to be either fully unfunctioning body uh, that's never going to get anything through. Right. Or it and that this was going to have to you would have to get this fairness certification, which, let's face it, actually is a speech code. Um, You know, you'd have to get a new one every two years, which means that you would perpetually be in um, the mode of of applying for speech certification. Um, So. You know, he he he. Holly claimed, and and his and the handful of supporters he has on this claimed that when Section two thirty immunity was granted, um, it was a quid pro quo for opening platforms to everyone and there being fairness. The platforms existed. Well, He's- and if you go, if you look at the, you're right, and if you look at the, yeah. if you look at the, the the congressional debate at the time, it was actually the exact opposite. Um, there was no quid pro quo to be quote. Neutral. There's no such thing as neutrality in terms of um, platforms, anyway, because it's such an arbitrary standard, and um, and so you know there 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 was never that um, responsibility or obligations. But he Holly wants to create one. So in order to be um, immune from liability for your site curation, um, you would have to prove that you're fair uh, to all political comers. Basically, um, the FTC would somehow be put in charge of this so that they would determine five members um, of the commission would determine um, whether you were whether you were neutral. And they would do that by examining, among other things, your um algorithms and the way that you run your site, which in on its face is a, a gross violation of, of proprietary and intellectual property. Um, so the whole the whole, you know, thing is is uh, it's almost a parody. He has no co-sponsors. We just checked. Yeah. And it's been months. Yeah. But I think rather than being a serious proposal intended to be legislated, um, I think this is to bear to bring pressure on the platforms um, to concede to some sort of self-regulation when it comes to, you know, n- political neutrality or to make concessions um, about, you know, conservative postings, all of which, you know, 
overlooks the fact that conservatives have done um, have have reaped great rewards from these platforms. Um, have there been problems? Well, there may have been. I'm I'm not in the position to say whether anyone's content was properly or improperly, um, you know, withheld or taken down. But you know what? What I think doesn't matter because it's not my platform, and so. But I'd say in general, you know, conservatives have gotten a great deal of exposure, public exposure through these platforms. If they want to have a different type of exposure or if they want to have direct control of their content, then they ought to do what um, conservative organizations did or conservative investors did with radio and with cable, which is buy stations and host their own programming and they and conservatives did extremely well um, with talk radio and with cable in doing so and I think that there's no reason to believe that they couldn't also do extremely well online um, as well as take advantage of of the platforms that already exist one of the arguments I also hear is that these big tech companies you know mostly are staffed at the top in California and other liberally heavy, States and most of the beliefs, political beliefs of the staff there is democratic and they contribute to the Democratic Party and they support the candidates, um, even CEOs. Hence, it feels icky. Like, I think they're going to screw me over, me, the conservative over, because they are doing this. Uh, what would you, what would you, how, how would you react to that? You know, this is hardly the first time that conservatives have run into, um, have have claimed that they're running into access problems with a liberal-dominated media. And let's face it, you know, there is a lot in the media that is liberal-dominated. On the other hand, there are an awful lot of industry sectors that are dominated by, um, you know, right investors who fall more to the right. Entertainment and media just doesn't happen to be one of them. But if you want to talk about, you know, um, mining or energy, then, you know, those are pretty well- Those are, I'm sorry, banking, banking. Those are pretty well, um, you know, fall on the right column. So the, the, you know, our, our entire economy, all the, the various sectors, interestingly, are pretty sliced up when it comes to falling either on the left side of the spectrum or the right side of the spectrum. That's just a, a, a fact of life. Okay. Be that as it may. So it's not entirely new by any means that you know conservatives have ru- had run-ins with with leftist media but this is i have i can't think of many times when i've heard conservatives demanding government action um, in the face of of this and that concerns me because you know, in terms of conservative first principles, um, we ought to be looking at, you know, individuals taking action as opposed to government taking action um, as being the proper um, the, the proper response. 
All right. Well, I really like that argument too. Like, I have nothing to add. You're the expert. You're with the Heritage Foundation. And if you guys, our listeners, don't know who the Heritage Foundation are, by the way, go to their website, check out their content. You'll see their beliefs. They're a conservative outpost right here in the middle of Capitol Hill. They always have been, and they have stuck to their principles no matter what the left or the right have said about them. And so uh, let's get into the recommendations for policymakers that you make, because I think those are very important. And then you also have recommendations for the public, which I find very helpful that not a lot of um, research institutions actually do. Um, what 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 would, we, would you start with? We start with, in terms of the recommendations, we start with first, do no harm. The, pro- the, the proper role of government when it comes to technology should be limited to um, of course, securing national defense, um, protecting and defending voluntary transactions like contracts and investments and ac- acquisitions, and settling disputes in law. M- much beyond that, whether it be content moderation policies, whether it be community standards online, those are things that really are not um, properly in the government purview and should remain with, you know, in the private sector and in private hands. We do want Congress to protect internet freedom. And this um, really involves undoing, not doing, and also um, preventing rather than you know, again, rather than doing something actively. So we're we're talking about undoing regulation. We're talking about preventing new regulation and um, making sure that our progress technologically continues to move forward um, because, and it should not surprise anyone, um, the United States has done spectacularly well with innovation in large part um, because there's been a great deal of, of hands-off um, that's not a great way to put it, but the government has largely been hands off. Right. If you compare tech. United States to Europe, right, and our leading economy and very developed democracies, it, there is a reason we have Silicon Valley and they barely have any big technological companies on the market. Uh, one I can think of is, I guess, Spotify, but they're not really even a fully technology company. But Basically none. It's all United States because in the mid '90s we took a more of a hands-off approach. That's right, and we're going to start to run into some um, dilemmas around that uh, with 5G because of the spectrum allocation issues. Spectrum being, you know, um, you know, um, managed by the government. But hopefully we'll be able to ride those things through and, and, and emerge with 5G innovation. But in any event, the point is that Internet freedom and Internet innovation demands, um, you know, very limited government. And then um, in the same vein, our third recommendation for, for, the, um, for government is to uh, reject reliance on government solutions. Even, even when well-intended, government solutions cannot, by, just by their very nature, uh, keep up with technological change. The churn is just too fast, and the, the, the government process is just too slow, as well as the fact that the expertise it just isn't there. And so as well, and the incentives in 
in rulemaking, in regulation, in in government policy are all wrong when it comes to, you know, technology. They're, the incentives are, as in much of government, are political. They're not technological. They're not, fi- you know, investment incentives. They're not financial. They're not, you know, the things that drive the, the, the private sector. And so they just don't fit uh, in technology. And what would you recommend the public do? What can they do? Well, the public, and I don't think this is so much an issue that individuals are grappling with so much as conservative groups, but, you know, consumers have a great deal of power and it's, you know, it's up to consumers to to wield that power by frequently frequenting the the platforms that they like and you know not frequenting those that they don't speaking up when they like and don't like the way that their um, services are being provided and um, you know being active in their in their consumerism. Uh, so we recommend that. We also recommend that investors who are dissatisfied with the current availability of access online, that they take their dollars and 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 establish alternatives. I mean, that's the basis of of our free enterprise system. I heard there's a dating app for Trump supporters. <laughs> Apparently really popular. There are marriages that came out of it. So, you know, there's space for everyone. I have every confidence that um, Americans can come up with, you know, no end of, of alternatives. I also have every confidence that Google and Facebook and all of the the current reigning incumbents will not always be the dominant players. We have seen throughout history where there have been a handful of dominant players that everyone is absolutely convinced can never be toppled, and they always are. And that's just a fact of, of life. Yeah, unless we put in such heavy regulations on them that no newcomers can enter the market. Exactly. Regulation benefits the incumbent players, and it also benefits the biggest dominant players. And all the lawyers. Don't forget about the lawyers. Just just as a lawyer in a think tank, I want to remind everyone that all the regulation benefits the lawyers in the law firms working 100, 120 hours a week. I don't envy them, but you know, that's what they do. And, and then finally, um, you know, I think you, there's the consumers have consumers that want to interact with, with particular platforms that like services in general that they're getting there and, and who may, um, prefer to stay where they are. Um, but, but pressed for change should you, should be actively using the, um, you know, the the processes that most platforms have in place um, to object and to appeal uh, decisions that have been made that may have been made about their content and use those tools. Um, and I think some people may be surprised that, you know, in in many cases uh, they will they will be made um, satisfied because platforms are businesses and they don't benefit by making their customers unhappy. 
That makes absolute sense, Diane. And before we wrap up, uh, before we start recording, you were telling me about your career path. And for our little women in tech segment, we chat about that. Uh, so do you mind sharing with our listeners? You mentioned to me that you had this is your third career path. So how did you end up at uh, the Heritage Foundation and what were your two previous career paths? Well, I started out with a degree in philosophy, which made me not very marketable um, to begin with. So I went into social work and because they, you know, there's always job openings and, and the qualifications are, are pretty low. And I, I say that knowing that there are a great number of people out there who work in social work who have, you know, the purest of intentions and, and, and really want to do public service, but it's a very, very difficult field. And I kind of fell into it by circumstance. Um, and then after, uh, you know, three, four years, I decided it just was not something I wanted to continue in. So I, I went back to school and, and um, got a master's degree in journalism and uh, became a reporter and loved it. Just loved it. And um, I loved the variety. I loved the constant learning about things. I loved the writing. Um, and I stayed in that for quite a long time. Um, and one of my assignments later in my career was uh, here in Washington to cover the um, Michigan delegation. I'm from Michigan. I was at the Detroit News for many years. And um, I got some policy experience while I was here. And so um, upon returning back to Michigan, I became a member of the editorial board. And that's when I really started to get deeply involved in in policy work and in you know policy analysis, and um, I had just an amazing mentor in the editorial page editor by the name of Thomas Bray, and you know he taught me so much, and and I'm so I'm still grateful to him today. So after the the newspaper was sold and um, the editorial page sort of positions were shifted, I left and and went to the Mackinac Center for Private for Public Policy, which is a, a state-based think tank. And that's where my my think tank life took off from. And um, what, but while I had been at the Detroit News editorial page, um, I covered issues like the environment and the auto industry. And that was kind of the and also at the same time, there was a great go, great deal going on about um, telephony and to those who are as old as me, you, issues about UNEP, universal, you know, access to, you know, various telecom lines and so on. And so that was really the start of, um, you know, my telecom experience. And that carried over into the Mackinac Center and future jobs because at that time there were not a lot of people who were were that educated in telecom policy issues and it was really just kind of coming to the fore um, in terms of the internet um, and so you know I was I'm old enough to have sort of been there you know early on and I um, but I'm still learning every single day I mean things change so quickly and um, just keeping up is is a great challenge but it's a challenge I enjoy. Dan, thank you so much for sharing your story and for sharing your opinions, which I know caused a lot of, you know, reaction from both conservative and more liberal circles. So it takes guts to, you know, say what you believe in. And we're very grateful you joined us today. Well, thank you. I'll just add one more thing. I, you know, I, 
I'm not surprised by by liberal critics. I was really taken aback, though, at how um, virulent some of the the uh, reaction was on the right. And uh, but thankfully, I have a bit of a thick skin. But I think that my my colleagues on the right would do well to uh, examine their their conscience and their intellect, <laughs> and and really look at. You know, what are the principles of conservatism and how do they apply in, in this instance? You know that you really got under under their skin when they're not addressing your arguments, but instead having personal attacks. And I want to thank you and tell you that a lot of people uh, I've heard personally from. And the reason we really wanted to have you on so fast, I know you you know worked with the schedule to be on the show so fast, is because... Everyone loved the paper. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. I'm so thrilled to hear that. Thank well, you so much. Have back very soon. And, thank you. Um, and your work is very important. And I thank you for all that you do as well. Thank you. Um, please subscribe and listen to us. Leave us a review so others can find the show. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.